Pastor. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. You may follow along on your Bibles or on the big screen. Hear now the word of God. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Amen. Thank you, David. Good morning, New Mercy. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be delivering today's message. Okay. I want to start with a story told by the comedian Kareth Foster. So Kareth Foster's husband, she got into a really bad motorcycle accident, uh, almost fatal, and he was taken to the emergency room. The doctors tried to ask Foster's husband about his medical history, but he was like going in and out of consciousness. So of course, Foster began to answer for him, but nobody seemed to be listening to her. She said, for the first time in my life, I felt invisible. One doctor looked at her with indifference and finally asked in a detached tone what her relationship was to the patient. As they continued to treat her husband, more members of the staff came, and they asked her the same question with the same tone. What's your relationship to the patient uh, with indifference? And it kept happening to the point that she was almost on the brink of tears. Foster said it wasn't the question that bothered her. She said, I understand that by law and hospital protocol, it needed to be asked. What was so disconcerting was the tone I perceived. By, by now, you may have figured out what was going on. Uh, Foster's husband is white, while Foster is black. And the doctors and the staff were all white. And Foster said, she remembered thinking, am I seriously having to deal with this racist BS right now? as my husband's life is on the line. She wanted to lose her temper and scream at the hospital staff. We're living in the 21st century. It's called a mixed race marriage. But she knew that her emotions were getting the best of her. And it was a highly stressful moment. And of course, she was sorely tempted to label the doctors and all the staff as racists. So she took a deep breath. She tried to de-stress and remind herself of what was actually happening. Everyone was doing their best to save her husband's life. And the stress of the situation was influencing her interpretations. And more than anything else, she needed to keep the lines of communication open. And soon enough, as she relaxed, there was harmony. The doctor showed her x-rays. They explained the procedures. Uh, one attendant even brought her coffee and refused to let her pay for it. And Foster said, that's when I had the epiphany that what I had experienced wasn't racism. No one was being malicious because I was black and my spouse was white. If she hadn't, you know, when we think about that situation, if she hadn't taken a step back, if she hadn't taken a deep breath and tried to think through what was really happening, things could have gotten a lot worse. She could have easily escalated the situation. So after the emergency, after her husband was doing better, she did make sure to talk with the hospital administration about the insensitivity, the lack of awareness she and her husband experienced, and everyone was receptive and apologetic. What I love about that story is, you know, we know that these days, that's not how things usually go. I like to say, you know, we live in a society where rage has become all the rage. Uh, there were multiple opportunities in that situation for things to just fall apart, things to get highly escalated, high, you know, much worse. Foster could have lost her temper, and it would have you know, just created more awkwardness and more difficulty in that situation. 
Today we're continuing our series on community. This is Community Month at New Mercy Palisades Church. And that story is an example of how one person's actions can affect the community. Based on how Foster reacted, it would have completely affected what was taking place in that hospital. And as we look at that story, I think we can all relate. We've all been in similar situations. Many of us have been victims of racial insensitivity or flat-out racism. You've been in situations where people assume things about you based on what we look like or their cultural biases. And, and zooming out more, the truth is every day we have multiple opportunities. Uh, perhaps even this morning, there are opportunities for you and I to be offended. People make inappropriate comments. People don't follow through on what they say they'll do. People criticize you unfairly. People hurt you with their actions. That's a normal day, right? For many of us, that's just life every day. And the way of the world today is simple. When you and I have an opportunity to be offended, we take it, right? We get offended. When somebody does or says something offensive, you can either, one, get revenge, offend them back. Some of you are really good with fighting back, with biting comments of your own. I have a friend who's like this. So I have a friend of mine, he was, uh, one day he was at work, and he was showing a video that he took in Korea with his drone. He was showing it to his coworkers. And his coworker asked him, hey, was that video taken in North or South Korea? So of course my friend replied, typical of this friend, uh, this time it was South, but next year I'm visiting my uncle, Kim Jong-un. <laughs> and his coworker replies, wow, he's your uncle? <laughs> and my friend nods and walks away. You know, that's something he would do. Maybe, you, maybe some of you would do that. Maybe you know somebody who would act that way. Okay, that's one option, right? Like fight back, hit them back. Uh, number two, uh, a lot of us do this, right? Instead of fighting, we like take flight. You don't do anything outward to get that person back, but you hold that offense. You kind of like watch over the fire of anger in your heart. Uh, maybe inside you, you write that person off. You don't forgive that person. You just say, it is what it is. By the way, that's my least favorite saying. I, we won't go there right now, but uh, you know, we, just, we just move on. Right? We say, you know, I'm going to move on, but then we don't actually move on. That offense still resides in our hearts, and it begins to, to fester. Many times what happens, whether you choose either option or both, is offenses start accumulating in our hearts. It could be multiple offenses from the same person. It could be a litany of offenses just over time from different people. And the end result of all of that is bitterness. The truth is many of us do carry bitterness in our hearts because we've allowed offense to pile up and continue to grow in our hearts. It's no wonder we see in our passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, what David read for us. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's very fitting that bitterness is associated with roots. You and I get offended and we don't deal with it properly, and that offense grows and eventually becomes this strong, bitter root. I like how one preacher put it. He said, bitterness grows in the soil of a hurt that has not been dealt with properly. So getting hurt is one thing, right? That happens to us. That happens to all of us. Maybe it's happened to you recently, but if you don't properly deal with it, if we don't take measure to uproot it, it will grow, and it will, it will keep growing. So I want to talk to you about the kudzu plant. We're going to do a little botany here today. Uh, the kudzu plant is native to Asia. 
It was brought to the United States in the late 17th century. According to Wikipedia, Kutsu has consumed 7.4 million acres of land in the southeastern United States. Okay, that's a picture of kutsu invading other trees in Atlanta, Georgia. So what kutsu does, it comes and it covers, it chokes off, it destroys whatever is in its path. It actually was originally classified as an ornamental plant in 1876. Then it was removed from that list in 1953. Then it was classified as a weed in 1970 before finally being placed on the federal noxious or poisonous weed list in 1997. So it took like a hundred years for whoever's in charge to realize that kutsu is bad. It's like, it's not ornamental. It's, it's really bad for the environment. I think the history of kutsu is similar to the history of bitterness in the human heart. It starts off as an ornament. Let's face it, when you and I first get bitter, it kind of feels good. It's even, even like pleasant, enjoyable. Uh, when I feel like I'm wronged by somebody and the anger rises up, that initial surge is like pretty energizing. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just drive down any road nearby. Okay, and you'll see it. Maybe in your own car. But what happens next, right? We start to entertain that hurt. We start to entertain that offense. We keep thinking about what that person said. We keep thinking about what that person did. And the anger begins to harden. And it begins to spread within our hearts. It truly becomes like a weed, this plant that just chokes off everything else in its path. And we know those weeds, those weeds become notoriously difficult to uproot. You know, one way that you know that you're bitter, uh, I, like, I like to say bitter people are expert movie makers. Bitter people are expert movie producers. Meaning you're great at playing the movie of you getting hurt, of you getting offended, like over and over in your mind in like 4K, UHD, you know, Dolby Atmos quality. Right? You see the person so well. You remember like his or her tone, his or, his or her exact words, their mannerism, their smug expression, like all of it. It's like so vivid. It feels so good while you watch it. And then you tell your mind, play it again. Right? Rewind the tape. I want to watch it again. I want to get angry again. If that's you, I, I humbly submit to you that you may be struggling with bitterness. And, and that bitter root, it becomes this noxious weed. It becomes poisonous. First, it's poisonous to the individual, to ourselves. Uh, I love this quote I heard in seminary once. Bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping that it will kill somebody else. So we carry this anger. We carry this bitterness. We direct it at somebody else when the reality is it's killing the person, right? It's killing us. It's, we're the ones actually consuming the poison. What began as like a tasty drink is actually like devastating to our hearts. And going back to our verse, we see that a bitter root grows up to cause trouble, not just in that person's life, but it ends up defiling many. It ends up poisoning many. And many of you know this, right? You know when someone's bitter, you have to like tiptoe around that person. You have to like, avoid certain situations, you know, make sure maybe the person and that person, you know, he or she is bitter at, they like avoid each other. Uh, Thanksgiving dinner is going to be here before you know it. We have stories, right, where one of our relatives comes over, the bitter one, right, angry at the world, and it just like transforms, right? it makes everything awkward. 
uh, at the dinner table. Everyone's on edge. Everyone's like double-checking their words. And that's what bitterness does. It starts out in the individual's heart, but then it grows and it grows. It defiles the individual first, and then it causes ruin to all the people around them. It's no wonder we see the connection in our verse. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, here's a couple ways to make sure people live in peace. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. And number two, that no bitter root, again, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So any individual bitterness is a massive threat to community. The writer of Hebrews is pleading, if you want to have a peaceful community, a true family of God, then you and I have to be vigilant about any bitter roots in our hearts. Otherwise, you'll have weeds, you'll have kutsu, and they will choke out the community. And the truth is, when we give in to bitterness, especially in the church, if you have a bitter heart toward anyone in the church, and I don't just mean our church, some of us, right, we have past experiences at other churches, perhaps growing up we had bad church experiences. Whenever that happens, we actually fall straight into the plans of our enemy. The devil's strategy, when it comes to the church, when it comes to God's people, when it comes to you and me, even here in this one place, has always been the same. It's always been the same strategy from the beginning of time. That strategy is divide and conquer. He wants to put a wedge in between you and other people. If he can get you offended and angry at somebody, he can mess your life up and he can cause harm to the community. The devil wants you and me to be chained in our hearts by offense. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief or the devil comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what the devil does. The devil comes to steal your joy, to kill your love, to destroy your destiny. That's his strategy. He divides. He conquers. It's always been that way. And many of you have seen this, unfortunately. Maybe you've been at a church where there's been a church split. I know some of you have seen church leaders literally duking it out. Cops called in. Uh, people just leave the church because of some conflict with somebody else. And sometimes what happens is people get into conflict with other people at church. And they leave the church. And hopefully they go to another church. But we know there's even people who, because of bitterness and offense, they leave the church and they actually stop going to church. They even begin to question their belief in God because they're really, the anger is really not at God, it's at other Christians. By the way, that's another uh, telltale sign of bitterness is when you generalize groups of people. If you're a single woman, you're like, ah, men, they're all the same. You might have some bitterness. Same way if you're a man. All women, they just want, all want the same thing. You might have some bitterness. And unfortunately, that takes place in the church. Christians start blaming other Christians. Christians start generalizing about other Christians. And I'm guilty. You know, I, I want to confess. I'm very Americanized. I'm very happy to be at this church. Uh, I've had some not-so-great experiences at more Koreanized churches. And I start, whenever I start generalizing about more Koreanized churches, that shows bitterness in my heart. So whenever we think this way, we're actually giving leverage to the enemy. We give the devil the upper hand. Ted Haggard. Some of you may recognize the name. Ted Haggard was like Mr. Super Pastor in America about 15 years ago. He spoke at all the conferences. He wrote a lot of books. 
He was the leader of the National Association of Evangelicals. Very popular, highly respected. And his church actually said, hey, Ted, like, you need time alone. Why don't you go and like, write your sermons and, and focus on the Lord? So they would actually pay for him to stay in hotels throughout the week. I don't know if that'd be good if our church did that. But he, he would actually stay in hotels right, throughout the week to focus on writing sermons. But in November 2006, a man came forward and claimed that Haggard would hire him. He was a male prostitute. He would hire him, and then he would also purchase and do crystal meth uh, with him. Eventually, Haggard confessed. He admitted everything that took place. He resigned from all his leadership positions. So you can imagine the reaction by his church, all the people who placed their trust in him, all the people who listened to him and were influenced by him. Literally like a week before the story broke out, I was hanging out with a friend who just saw him speak at a conference in Colorado and like bought all of his, was it cassette tapes? I don't know, cassette tapes or CDs of like his teachings, right? Literally that's like, and he was just raving, but he wanted, he wanted to share them with me, right? So there was a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of offense. And I read this article by a guy named Mike, and he tells this story. He was having a business lunch at a sports bar with a close atheist friend. And he loved this guy, great guy, very deep thinker. And during lunch, uh, Mike's friend points at the large TV screen on the wall. And he says, this is the reason I will not become a Christian. So it's actually, a TV, the TV show is actually recapping the fall of Ted Haggard. So he's like, this is the reason I will not become a Christian. Many of the things you say make sense, Mike, but that's not what keeps me away. But, that, but that, that on the screen is what keeps me away. So Mike turns around. He has to, like, study the screen. He has to, like, realize it's not sports and, like, what, what, what's actually happening here. And he realizes, you know, what, what the story is. So Mike immediately assumes, like you probably just did, that his friend was referring to Ted's hypocrisy. He, you know, Ted was preaching one way but obviously living another way. And Mike was like, hey, man, hey, man, like, not all of us are like that. Right? Not many of us do things like that. His friend laughed and said, Michael, you just proved my point. See, that guy was sorry a long time ago. Even his wife and kids stayed and forgave him. But all you Christians still seem to hate him. You guys can't forgive him and let him back into your good graces. Every time you talk to me about God, you explain that he will take me as I am. You say he forgives all my failures and will restore my hope. But, he continued, that guy failed when he was one of you, and most of you are still vicious to him. Finally, he paused and said, you Christians eat your own. Always have, always will. You Christians eat your own, always have, always will. And many of us know that is a sad but true statement. We, we let the devil win too often. We let him divide and conquer we don't forgive as quickly as we should. Instead of extending grace, we extend judgment. We let offense take root and begin to grow in our hearts. So it all starts with vigilance. It starts with this awareness of the devil's strategy. We've got to pay attention to what is actually happening. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That person you have bitterness against, he's not your enemy. She's not your enemy. The real enemy is the devil and his demons. So here's what we have to do when there is a chance of being offended. 
Like, picture the moment when you can be offended. Probably easy for us, right? Especially, let's say, especially by another Christian. The moment someone says something offensive, does something that hurts you, completely justified. Okay, we're not downplaying it. We're not, you know, saying just forget about it. There are many legitimate opportunities to get offended. But we've got to have eyes to see the spiritual reality of what is taking place. We've got to have this attitude that's like, I know what's going on here. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it. I got this. The devil is a liar. Get behind me, Satan. You ain't stumbling me today. You ain't messing up my focus. I believe if we saw what that offense could do to our hearts, if we could see clearly in the spiritual realm, if we could take notice of the roots of bitterness and how they would begin to grow, we would be much more likely to say no. We would refuse to be offended. Brothers and sisters, this is a mindset that we can have. This is a heart orientation that God can give us. Forgiveness is a choice that we can make right in that moment. It can be instant. I think of what took place in Charleston, South Carolina. You all know the story. A young man entered the basement of the church, sat nearly for an hour in that Wednesday night Bible study, and then shot and killed nine people, including the church's senior pastor. Two things stand out when I think about that story. Uh, Number one, the bullets began flying, and the first instinct of many of the members of the church would actually stand between the killer and his intended victims. They would actually stand in front of the gun and plead with the killer, right? Don't, you know, please don't do this. They weren't afraid of death. They were ready to sacrifice even for their own brothers and sisters. Uh, Number two is when the surviving family members confronted the killer in a court hearing just two days after the murders, two days after that tragedy, they confronted the killer with offers of forgiveness and mercy. They pleaded with him to receive God's offer of salvation. As one priest and writer said, they were not ready. How could anyone be ready for that? But they were prepared. How does that forgiveness take place? If there was any opportunity for offense, if there was any opportunity for rage, for bitterness, it was this. But these men and women of God, they had the right orientation. They practiced this art regularly in their lives. The art of not taking offense, the art of instantly forgiving. That even two days later, they can stand in a court in front of the killer while they're grieving, completely devastated, and offer forgiveness to the killer. These actions come from vigilance. They come from this attitude that says, I'm going to protect my heart. Life is too short. My heart is too precious. My relationships are too important. So with the Lord's help, I'm going to be a gatekeeper and make sure offense doesn't take any residence within my heart. My battle is not against other people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the devil and the ways that he seeks to deceive and destroy. He's not going to deceive me. He's not going to be able to touch my heart. And one time I was preparing a sermon, and I was single at the time, uh, but I had this thought, and it hit my heart like a ton of bricks. And the thought was, those of us who are married, the person you will sin the most against is your spouse. The person you will offend the most, who will offend you the most, who you will hurt and will hurt you the most, 
is your spouse. All right? Single people, have you ever thought about that? All, right? All the married people are like, yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> I mean, honestly, right, no wonder so many people get divorced. Right? If you're not good at instantly forgiving, if you're not good at letting go of offenses, if you let bitter roots crop up in your heart, marriage can become this miserable place. A study by two social psychologists showed that the vast majority of couples who drift apart, they drift apart slowly, and it's this snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification, where each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying what they're doing. That's another sign of bitterness, is we justify our bitterness. We, we say it's our right to be angry, and that leads to growth of these bitter roots. Uh, one time I was on Twitter. Usually I'm there to track sports. Uh, people say Twitter is like being at a sports bar, and everyone's like commenting all together. Um, thankfully, I wasn't on Twitter during last night's baseball game. But uh, one time, uh, Pastor Tim Keller was on Twitter. And Pastor Tim Keller had a hashtag, hashtag AskTK. So one person asked this question to Keller. She asked, what is most important when choosing someone to marry? Hashtag AskTK. That's a great question. All right, now what do you think Keller would say? I could see myself saying something like, oh, make sure he reads the Bible. Uh, make sure she prays regularly. Make sure they have a vibrant relationship with God, a faithful churchgoer, someone who loves God, someone who fears God. But we see, right, no wonder that Keller wrote this in his answer. Right? He said to her, besides being of the same faith, it will be someone who can forgive and repent regularly. Hashtag AskTK. Nailed it, right? That's the secret right there. The same principle instantly forgiving, refusing to bear offense. Single people, you want to know what to look for in your spouse? Like, this is it. Right? Someone who forgives and repents regularly. Here's another way to see the big picture. Uh, sneak preview, next week I'm going to talk about vulnerability, the importance of vulnerability in community. And uh, a good number of our leaders have already heard me talk about this. But the importance of uh, community, there needs to be both authority and vulnerability. So in order for an individual to flourish, in order for a community to flourish, there needs to be a sense of both. Everybody's got to feel they have some authority and then some vulnerability. Again, next week we'll tackle vulnerability, the importance of taking a risk. But what is true authority? Authority is defined by uh, uh, the author as the capacity for meaningful action the capacity for meaningful action, that you and I can make a difference in our decisions. You know, those of you who are at work, if you feel like you have authority, you're, you're, doing meaning, you're making decisions that influence things, then you feel useful, right? Some of you are struggling at work because you feel like that's not really happening, right? Um, we need to know that our actions produce change. And I want to submit to you today that true authority is when we refuse to bear offense, because what are you really saying? You're saying, I have power to say no to the attack of the devil. I have the power to instantly forgive. That is real authority. Sometimes we mistakenly think that forgiving people like, shows weakness. No, it's the opposite. When you forgive someone, you're actually using your God-given authority. You're taking meaningful action to let that person go and also to protect your heart. We are not helpless when we are offended. God has given us power to love, to forgive, to overcome. 
So I exhort all of us, let's be people who see the big picture, who refuse to play the devil's game, who adopt this posture of instant forgiveness. That may happen today at fellowship. Maybe you're in the cafeteria and someone says something offensive. That's your chance, okay? <laughs> Instantly forgive. That's a preventive me- measure. I want to also give you a prescriptive measure because we know that a lot of us do have bitterness right now in our hearts. And the bitterness has grown. It's, it's bigger than just a seed. Uh, perhaps it's even a poisonous weed. Uh, so what do we do that? There's no quick fix for that. The prescription comes from Pastor Lon Solomon. Uh, Pastor Solomon, he shared a story of his mom. So he actually grew up really angry and bitter and resentful toward his mom. By the way, my mom is actually here today. I love my mom. <laughs> but, uh, but this story, right? Solomon had a difficult relationship with his mom. And even as an adult, he realized there were still deep and bitter roots and he needed to forgive her. So every day he just came before God and just presented his heart. He just took time to pray. He showed God the state of his heart. He poured out his heart to the Lord, all the wounds, all the roots, asking God to give him power to truly forgive his mom. He did that every day. Now, how long do you think it took for Solomon to believe that he actually fully forgave his mom? How long do you think that would take? He says it took four years. Four years. That's a presidential term. Every day for four years, he prayed. And we need to do the same. If we have any bitter roots in our heart, we need to come before God regularly and just talk to him about it. God, this is the state of my heart. I am angry toward this person. You can even say, God, here are all the things the person did. I said before how bitter people like to replay movies in their mind. Well, if we're going to do that, let's replay those movies in prayer before God. And I do that all the time, by the way. I take my prayer walks. I'm like, God, can you believe what this person said? Uh, can you believe what this person did? We need to walk it out, talk it out with God. And then we cry out. We say, God, I need your grace. I need your power to forgive. I know this is poison. I need your help so I can let go to not allow this movie to play over and over in my mind. God, I've played it with you. I know you see me. I know you care about the hurt that I've endured. But now can you delete this movie? I don't want this movie in my playlist anymore. But I can't do this by myself, God. I need you to come into my heart and help pull out these roots for me. Church, it is worth it. It is worth fighting for. One time will not be enough. You and I have to constantly present our hearts before God over and over and over again. Develop that honest prayer life with God. But freedom will come. Forgiveness will come. Your joy will be restored. It is 100% worth it. So those are two concrete applications. Be ready to instantly forgive, prevention, and present your heart to God over and over, prescription. I want to give us one last way to think about this whole issue, to approach this human struggle with offense and bitterness. So here at New Mercy, we subscribe to Reformed Theology, basically known as being like the five points of Calvinism. Uh, We believe in the doctrine, the first point is total depravity. Uh, Total depravity is a doctrine that human nature is thoroughly corrupted, thoroughly sinful. That because of Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden, 
we are all children of Adam. We are all born sinners. We see this idea in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, where David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So David is acknowledging he was born a sinner. It's very much part of the human condition. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. So in other words, sin has permeated all of our minds, all of our hearts. And without the saving power of God, we are in essence enslaved to our sinful desires. And because of sin, sin just affects the fullness of the world, the fullness of humanity. And that's not hard to believe. Right? Just read any internet comments. We live in a world like full of great injustice. We know that while we're here on earth, there's going to be a lot of sin, a lot of depravity. There's going to be a lot of people that will sin against you, that will provide prime opportunities for you and me to get angry, to be offended, to fall into bitterness. So if we believe this doctrine of total depravity, that man is sinful, man is highly more likely to cause pain instead of blessing then we have a framework that we actually need to be more patient, to be less susceptible to bitterness. Uh, One priest, Heidi Haverkamp, she puts it this way. She says, when unreasonable, unremitting human sin is something I expect, then I can face the headwinds of evil without despair. When I believe that human life, including my own, will never be without sin and suffering, I have a greater ability to tolerate pain and horror, and to keep on doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. Another term for this, one of my favorite terms, would be low anthropology. Uh, We know, we expect that man is sinful, that people will disappoint us. Believing in the doctrine of total depravity actually better equips us to fight against offense and bitterness in our hearts. However, while I've been talking about this idea of total depravity, Some of us are probably like, yeah, I know people like that. Yeah, yeah, that's my boss. You know, there's that person that drives me crazy. Okay, then you're missing the point. The point of total depravity is for you. Okay, it's for me to realize how sinful we are. Have you ever noticed how people who think they're good, people who think they're righteous, are actually mean? Have you ever noticed that? They act like they're better than you. It's like what Jesus pointed out with the Pharisees. They act, they, you know, if they think they're following the law better than you, whatever that law is, the law of worldly success, the law of the Old Testament, the law of successful parenting, the law of eating more cleanly, whatever that law is, right, people like that, they end up with this feeling of superiority, which kind of makes them jerks. <laughs> However, right, if you know that you are like what the Apostle Paul wrote, the worst of sinners, that without God, you are totally depraved. You are a sinner without hope of rescue. If you are the one who is always aware of your own sin, which causes you to cry out to God, again, regularly repent, confess your wrongdoings before the Lord, then you are much, much less likely to struggle with bitterness. You are much, much more likely to be a promoter of unity, a promoter of blessing in the community. When someone offends you, what's the thought we have sometimes? I would would never do that, right? I would never act that way. It's really a sense of moral superiority. Do you see how that can lead to more bitterness? But if your thought is, 
if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would do the same thing. I could do the same thing. Then, then you've got it. Then you're in the right place. Imagine if we were all like that here at New Mercy. Everyone having that mentality. I am the worst of sinners. I am capable of terrible thoughts and actions. If not for the grace of God, I could be just as bad, if not worse, than anyone else. We would have an amazing community. We'd have people bearing with one another in love. We'd have people constantly giving each other grace instead of judgment. We'd have true growth because where there could be fractures, there would be healing. People would just be swimming in the grace of God. People would be floating high because they know that they are wretched sinners and yet they are forgiven. And therefore, it's our authority, it's our privilege to not bear offense, to not allow bitter roots to grow. But we know that we can't do any of this on our own. We can't do any of this in our own strength because forgiving others, extending grace toward others, it gets tiring. We, we all get weary of it. And that's when we need to look again at Jesus. The Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured the journey to the cross. Remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's crying out. He said, God, is there any other way? I don't want to drink this cup. Is there any other way for me to save the people rather than dying in utter shame and humility on the cross? Because Jesus knows that the people he's going to die for, they're going to disobey him. We're going to casually disobey him. We're going to doubt his goodness. We're going to forget about him from time to time. Jesus knows all of that is going to happen. And then remember when Jesus gets arrested, Peter whips out a sword, cuts off the ear of the officer. I imagine Jesus being like, oh man, these people, they just don't get it. They just want to fight. They just want to get angry all the time. Right? And then Jesus gets arrested. Jesus is brought before a corrupt dictator. He's brought before a king who's basically insane. He's forced to carry this heavy wooden cross. He's beaten, flogged within an inch of his life, and basically crucified like a piece of meat. At any point, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and said, enough! Like, these people, they're all going to fail me. They're all, they're all not going to come through for me. Enough of this. Plenty of reason for Jesus to be bitter. Plenty of reasons for Jesus to say, you know what, I'm not doing this. But what does Jesus say? While he's hanging on the cross, he cries out to the Father. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. While blood is just flooding out of Jesus, there's just so much opportunity for that blood to be mixed with bitterness. But instead, it's just love. It's all love. Just pure love for you and for me. When we get bitter, it's because something unfair has happened to us. But let's remember the most unfair event in human history. It took place on the cross where we have a Savior who willingly died for us. So let us again ponder let us again savor what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Then and only then will we receive the power that we need to not be bitter, to be able to forgive, that we will be a people where there is no bitter root. 
Let's pray together.